fucking springy now, even though it's kind of bullshit outside. It's not so bad right now, but it's going to get worse. Yeah. It'll um, get, it's like just we're in the drear period, the dreariest, I guess. Yes. Um, between April and May. Mm. And the doldrums. Uh, the doldrums, indeed. The monsoon season for this part of the world. Pretty much. April showers bring May Power Rangers. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Welcome to Super Duper Stitious, the paranormal podcast where we take a scientific approach to the strange and supernatural. We're getting better at that. Yeah. It only took about 60 episodes, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we, I think, yeah. It's a good pace. We're, we're there now. Yeah. So Who we'll knows co- where we'll be in another 60 episodes? Maybe we'll be <laughs> a good show. <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah, no, you're right. Keep dreaming. Um, <laughs> I'm Wyatt. I'm Jake. And uh, yeah, welcome everybody. Welcome happy back if you for been first around. time or a, another time. Should we do all of our talking at the same time this episode? Let's that try could it out. Be, it could really Let's be efficient. We just talk over <laughs> each other's <laughs> entire time. <laughs> we both our segments at the same time. You have you to have listen all this, and also... I'll pan oh, just, our two tracks <laughs> to left and right and you can listen with one headphone or the other and then, yeah, yeah and choose if your you own adventure. Don't wind up bleeding from the nose and dying. <laughs> you should write in. Contact us at contact at superduperstitious.com and say that you survived. And you can join the little club of survivors, which at this point <laughs> would be an even smaller percentage of the people who already uh, listen. Mm-hmm. So thus, I guess there like would be two people. people. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so welcome everyone. This week, our topic is sort of strange medical mystery wonder strangeness. Exactly. Things that I could not have put better myself. Uh, weird maladies that seem not as mal- phenomena involving medical stuff that could be paranormal, some people think. Maybe not. And that's it. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> and I couldn't have said that better myself. <laughs> Perfect. So We're operating at our peak performance then. If I would say we're at better. 110% efficiency right now. <laughs> I want to go back and retake the SATs and GREs right now because I'm feeling so, so cognizant. I did really okay on both of those. Yes. Really okay. 70 out of 100%. (laughs) Probably actually around, I don't know, yeah. Pretty uh, fine. All right, let's go. (laughs) So I'm going to start out with near-death experiences. Oh. Yeah. Uh, NDEs. Exactly. Um, I hadn't actually realized that was the go-to um, abbreviation for it until I was re- researching this. And I got most of my stuff here today is just from a kind of abridged version of an article from How Stuff Works by Ed Grabianowski. Director of the movie Pi. <laughs> Dr. Raymond Moody coined the term near-death experience in his 1975 book Life After Life. Many credit Moody's work with bringing the concept of the near-death experience, or NDE, to the public's attention. But reports of such experiences have occurred throughout history. Mm. It cites uh, Plato's Republic, written in 360 BCE, contains the tale of a soldier named Ur who had an NDE after being killed in battle. (laughs) Ur described his soul leaving his body, being judged along with other souls and seeing heaven. So I want to argue that if he was killed in battle... (laughs) It was not a near-death experience. It was just a death experience. <laughs> and so I, I, I didn't bother to mm-hmm. then look into reading that part of the Republic because I didn't feel like it. Uh, College. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. Uh, 
So I don't know the context as far as Er then relating his experience. If it was just like mm-hmm. a narration that Plato gives him, or if he's supposed to have actually told it to him if he did come back. I don't know. Don't did care. I forget? <laughs> yep. For the purposes of this article, a near-death experience is an experience in which someone close to death or suffering from some trauma or disease that might lead to death perceives events that seem to be impossible, unusual, or supernatural. Mm-hmm. While there are many questions about NDEs, they are they for sure happen. Uh, thousands of people have perceived similar sensations while close to death. The debate is over whether or not they actually experienced what they think they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, here are the traits that typical NDEs share. Um, seeing an intense, pure, bright light, either all-encompassing or entering the room they're in or mm-hmm. something. Um, often very, very powerful, but never unpleasant. Uh, out-of-body experiences, you know, rising out of their body and... Maybe seeing doctors performing surgery on them or whatever. Right, or, right. And then maybe flying out of the room. Um, <laughs> spirit beings being present. They think they're either angels or Jesus or God or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tunnel. is a very, very mm. common one. A feeling that they're going down some kind of sort of dark tunnel with a bright light at the end getting closer and closer. Do they ever feel like they're going down the channel, though? <laughs> I think only in specific parts of the world. I see. That's only in Britain. Or France. Or France, depending. <laughs> uh, communication. I believe in France it's the Chanel. Chanel. <laughs> communication with spirits. Uh, before the NDE ends, many subjects report some form of communication with the spirit being. is often expressed as a strong male voice telling them that it is not their time and to go back to their body. <laughs> you all right? <laughs> Just imagine, happen, like Mr. T or um, <laughs> Randy Savage, maybe Is Macho like, Man. Macho Randy Man, Savage. yes. It's not it's your time, time, brother. brother. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do hope that that is exactly. Not only that that's what they experienced, but that's also actually God's I'm gonna go voice. Try to get hit by a car right now to find <laughs> <Yes>. out. <laughs> get back in that body, son. <laughs> Uh, some subjects report being told to choose between going into the light or returning to their earthly body. Others feel they have been compelled to return to their body by a voiceless command, possibly coming from Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> There's also a thing called life review, also called the panoramic life review, either seeing their whole life flash before their eyes quickly or maybe over time. And they may also perceive some form of judgment by nearby spirit entities as that happens. So, so annoying. Yes. <laughs> Did you have to see that time that I peed my pants in grade school? Oh, so many times. Didn't want to have Macho Man Randy Savage see me like that. That's gross, brother. (laughs) Uh, Some NDEs have elements that bear little resemblance to this typical near-death experience, but instead take quite a turn. Anywhere from 1%, according to a 1982 Gallup poll, to 25%, according to some researchers, of subjects do not experience feelings of peace nor do they visit heaven or meet friendly spirits, like most people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, they feel terrified and are accosted by demons or malicious imps. Ooh. And may visit places that fit biblical descriptions of hell, mm. including lakes of fire, tormented souls, and a general feeling of oppressive heat. They may also hear random bossa nova music playing and uh, want to play some sort of casino-style games. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard. That, yeah. That's true. I'm not really sure what that's about, but... Uh, children is, have also been the subject of NDEs. Very young children tend to report surreal experiences that have some common NDE, NDE elements. And as they get older, their religious teachings often color their NDEs with more spiritual connotations, such as meeting God or Jesus. Go so they figure. later on then apply that stuff to what they experienced. 
Uh, a small percentage of NDE subjects report a prophetic vision that reveals to them the fate of Earth and humanity. Wow. This is generally an apocalyptic vision showing the end times, but some report visions of uh, humanity evolving into higher beings as well. Ooh. So that's a thing. I was just thinking of ascending to higher beings made me think of, um, you know, bullshit and <laughs> uh, specifically new age bullshit. And someone gave my mom this. Yep, yep. Someone um, gave my mom this little puck thing uh, at a craft fair. And she's like, oh, no, thanks. I don't want it. He's like, no, no, it's free. You can just take it. It'll, it'll help your plants grow. And she's like, okay. And so she just had it and didn't know what it was. And then I saw it. And I was so delighted to discover that it is a piece of organite. Oh, my God. <laughs> it is um, some just random scrap metal chunks and spiral wire crudely crammed into some resin along with some quartz. This that's organ. Yeah, that is, uh, that's how you summon life energy is through organite. Hmm. I was absolutely tickled to see that she had a thing that I could identify based on stuff we've done on the show. Yes. Uh, I was like, this is a piece it's of- paying it's off. Like, exactly. It's all working out. Yeah. Uh, it was, he was giving away for free because they were like his factory seconds. That's why you can see it looked like shit. Um, I think he had something that actually looked a little bit more- on purpose than that. Mm-hmm. Where was I? Um, hmm. In 1982, pollster George Gallup <laughs> Jr. and author William Proctor released Adventures in Immortality, mm. a book about NDEs based on two Gallup polls specifically addressing near-death and belief in the afterlife. This poll remains the most widely used source for statistics about NDEs. Gallup and Proctor found that 15% of all Americans who had been in near-death situations reported NDEs. I'll point out that this statement sounds much dumber when you take it back out of the acronym context. Should just be 15% of all Americans who had been in near-death situations reported near-death experiences. And I was just going to riff on that by saying that I had thought prior to learning about this that NDE meant near-dog experience. (laughs) So if you have a near-death experience, you might have an NDE, which is pretty sweet. (laughs) Yep. Uh, a statistical analysis of more than 100 NDE subjects. It's a very small number. 101. <laughs> yes. It's usually uh, what it means. In the scientific paper, when they said, we did more than X, it's like, one more we than, did literally yeah. one more than that. <laughs> more than 100 NDE subjects revealed that prior religious belief and prior knowledge of NDEs did not have any appreciable effect on the likelihood of having an NDE. Hmm. So, not necessarily being primed for it, which is kind of cool. It's kind of counter cool. to a lot of the stuff we usually talk about I wonder about if there's the any correlation between how much their head was damaged. <laughs> yeah, that will come up more so. Um, <laughs> other research is focused on the effect an NDE has on the subject's life. Uh, Kenneth Ring, one of the most prolific researchers and authors on NDE studies, reports a large number of subjects who gain self-confidence and become more extroverted after an experience. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the studies quantified changes in subjects' attitude toward life. These generally included a sense of purpose in life and appreciation for life, an increase in compassion, patience and understanding, and an overall feeling of personal strength. Mm-hmm. A small percentage of subjects reported feelings of fear, depression, and a focus on death. I'm guessing they may also be the ones who saw hell. I don't know. Oh. Uh, maybe. Almost, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I, I'd imagine so. Yes. Ring also found that NDE subjects tend to feel a heightened sense of religious feeling and belief in a spiritual world. Mm-hmm. However, he knows that this this did not necessarily translate into an increase in church attendance. It's more of an internal, personal increase in religious and spiritual feelings. The best, that's the best kind. Yes. <laughs> um, finally, people who go through NDEs often find that they do not fear death and feel that a positive experience will be awaiting them when they actually die. That's good. Again, asterisks, but see 
people who saw imps and demons and shit. Yes. Punch them in the dick. <laughs> exactly. Possible explanations. Mm-hmm. Uh, medical, <laughs> medical science. That I couldn't couldn't quite hit the D. My tongue was just everywhere else except the roof of my mouth. That's what she said. <laughs> medical science <laughs> offers compelling evidence that many aspects of NDEs are physiological and psychological in nature. Scientists have found that the drugs ketamine and PCP can create sensations in users that are nearly identical to many NDEs. So hmm. some heavy shit, mm-hmm. but it gets them to almost the exact same place. In fact, some users think they are actually dying while on the drug. Mm-hmm. The mechanism behind some of these strange experiences is in the way our brains process sensory information. So what we see as reality around us, it's only the sum of all sensory information our brain is receiving at any given moment. That's all, I mean... That's what senses are for, is to perceive stuff, and unless, then our brain makes that into a reality. Unless you can see the matrix. That's true. At that point, uh, your perceived reality may be dramatically different from mm-hmm. the others. You read the code. <laughs> uh, trauma affecting functional areas of the brain. Um, did I jump? Yeah. <laughs> it's happening right now. Uh, <laughs> Trauma affecting functional areas of the brain, such as the somatosensory and visual cortexes, mm. uh, could cause hallucinations that get interpreted as NDEs. Some have theorized that neural noise, or an overload of information sent to the brain's visual cortex, creates an image of a bright light that gradually grows larger. Mm. The brain may interpret this as moving down a large tunnel towards, or down a dark tunnel towards a light. Uh, the body's spatial sense is prone to malfunction during a near-death experience as well. Again. Your brain interprets faulty information about where the body is in relation to the space around it. The result is the sensation of leaving the body and flying around the room. (laughs) Combined with other effects of trauma and oxygen deprivation in the brain, a symptom in many near-death situations, this leads to the overall experience of floating into space while looking down at your body and then leaving to float down a tunnel. Plus, any number of hallucinations that might come from oxygen deprivation as well. You may be getting to this, but there are certain reports I remember hearing about that were crazy. Like, the kind of shit these people saw. Oh, yeah, like flying through space and doing a lot of stuff. But also, the things they saw while, like, going through really intense surgery or something like this, where they, like, have to be killed or die for moments. Mm-hmm. Well, not killed, you know what I mean? <laughs> they have to be murdered. They have to Medically be murdered. murdered. <laughs> But they're, like, seeing things and hearing conversations during their out-of-body experience mm-hmm. that they then later report, and people were just like, holy fuck. How did you hear How that? did yeah. you hear or even know that was happening? Like, it, it, they, they were seeing things that were, like, on the other side of the room from where they were lying. So it wasn't even possible to have been interpreted as, like, they just saw with their actual eyes. Like, they hmm. literally had a top-down view of themselves. Saw, like, a nurse grab this tool, do this thing over at another prep table or something, and, like... It's just crazy. That's really interesting. And that is, so there are elements that are not totally explainable by a science. That could all be bullshit, but <laughs> also could be bullshit. You know, and there's just, also ways like as yeah. far as hearing conversation and stuff. Like if you are out, you may not be conscious, but you can your still ears receive still information. Yeah, and because of in cases like this where things are happening to your brain different from what would normally happen, right? It may then unlock memories of stuff that you might have just otherwise forgot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you actually remembering conversations that you wouldn't have really been awake for. Um, kind of like when you're kind of half asleep and you right. perceive stuff happening in the room too. A little bit weird, but um, yeah, hard to say. And so then it's possible they might hear people talking about what they're doing and then kind of perceive as like imagining what it looks like and then see that happening that they mm-hmm. couldn't have seen. It's hard to say for sure. 
Uh, the peaceful calm sensation felt during NDEs may be a coping mechanism triggered by increasing levels of endorphins produced in the brain during trauma as well. So all mm-hmm. the like feelings mm-hmm. of all-encompassing joy and peace. Many people experience a strange sense of detachment and a lack of emotional response during traumatic events. Sure. Uh, so this is the same kind of effect. NDEs that include visits to heaven or meetings with God could involve a combination of several factors. So it's like, yeah, all the different things we said. Um, when the subject re- recalls the encounter later, it has passed through the filter of their conscious mind. And so they may then interpret it to mean things that they wouldn't have otherwise. They apply the context after the fact, basically. Of course, it's only scratches the surface. It's really, science has a hard time really describing death in general. Like what, when are you officially dead? Uh, trying to medically define death, clinical death, organ death, brain death, things like that. And for every aspect of an NDE, there's at least one scientific explanation for it. For every scientific explanation, there seem to be five NDE cases that defy it. Mm-hmm. This article. Um, so basically, it's just a weird thing, but not a mystical thing. Mm-hmm. There's some still mysterious parts to it that we don't totally understand yet, but it can probably be explained by all the crazy shit that happens to your body while it's just struggling to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Um, people going through extreme situations physiologically will have extreme experiences mentally. But the scary negative NDE cases are, in fact, all people actually going to hell. The end. Well, damn. It is the kind of thing that I would like to test more, and I think I'll start right now. <laughs> Just put this pillow over my face. I'll tell you what I see. Yeah. Yeah. Hold this over my face until I start reporting stuff. <laughs> um, that's crazy. And it makes me think about a person who happened to pass away recently. Yes, we all did uh, recently lose someone very near and dear to all of us. Um if you have been paying attention to the news, you may know that in the past week, famous demonologist Lorraine Warren just died on Thursday, April 18th, 2019. Uh, this is, Too I think, soon. three days after we recorded our most recent episode. Otherwise, we would have talked about it then. So instead, we're going to devote some time now to uh, reflecting on Lorraine and Ed Warren. Jake, do you want to start or should I? Um, I don't give a shit. <laughs> you want to start? Yeah, I'll start then. You've been talking for long enough. I have. I'm sick of hearing you. <laughs> Me too. Will this loop for the next 45 minutes? <laughs> I can loop it if I need to. I figure I'll let it play through and then I'll just in post have it be a continuous thing. <laughs> Mostly it's just for now for us. I'm enjoying it. All right. Well, I think there could be no better way of commemorating and respecting paying due respect to Lorraine and to a lesser extent Ed <laughs> then um, going over some of their efforts to perform demonology yes so I'll start with perhaps the uh, most famous Warren case Amityville mm-hmm so in 1974 in the Amityville neighborhood of Long Island New York Ronald DeFeo jr murdered his entire family in the middle of the night, later claiming he heard voices plotting against him, which motivated his actions. Yes. Roughly a year later, the Lutz family, George, Kathy, and their three children, purchased the DeFeo home, including some of the DeFeo furniture for some reason, and moved in. The Lutzes later claimed they experienced unexplainable phenomena, nightmares, and encountered entities of a demonic nature. Mmm. Lorraine and her husband, then just budding paranormal researchers and demonologists attempted a new methodology of holding a psychic slumber party. (laughs) Some two months 
after the Lutzes abandoned their new home in the middle of the night. As was necessary for the slumber party, the Warrens were followed by a camera crew from a local news affiliate. <laughs> Lorraine sensed great malevolence in the house and knowing this to indicate demonic entities took a photo of one which wasn't one of the crew members. <laughs> Thankfully, this TV appearance catapulted the Warrens as experts in the field of paranormal researchers and just happened to coincide with the release of the Amityville Horror in 1979, which subsequently cemented the Warrens' well-earned reputation for years to come. Yes. Including up to and after Ronald DeFeo's lawyer, William Weber, described how he, Kathy, and George Lutz consumed four bottles of wine one evening and had a creative writing session about what kind of thing could go into writing a horror book. Totally coincidental. Very groundbreaking work on the part of both Lorraine and also probably Ed. Oh, undoubtedly. Yes. Um, I don't think I'll talk next about one of their other triumphs was um, in 1981, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was arrested and tried for murdering his landlord, Alan Bono. His defense argued that Johnson was not in control of his actions due to demonic possession. Mm. Johnson's fiance, Debbie Glatzel, had a little brother, David, who was 11 years old at the time, and after uh, he was visited by a man with big black eyes that bore a striking resemblance to Satan, began showing signs that he was no longer himself. Mm. The Warrens began making regular visits to um, to their house, bringing with them multiple priests and performing three lesser exorcisms, as they said. Ed commented that he and Lorraine knew there were 43 demons in the boy. Mm. While the priests involved denied any exorcisms had actually transpired in the castle home at all, uh, David began to show signs of improvement, especially after the boy was placed into counseling and moved to a private school for disturbed children. Uh, but Johnson was not so lucky, as apparently a few of the 43 demons that were exercised from David's body entered his, resulting mm. in his killing the landlord with a five-inch pocket knife, stabbing the man over and over again as Debbie Glatzel watched. It's a deep pocket. It's a very deep pocket. Uh, the judge and jury sadly did not buy it, and they convicted Johnson. The Warrens definitely didn't mischaracterize a young boy's mental illness and then spin it into a supernatural legal defense for Johnson and then combine both stories to make a broader ghost story that they could sell for money. Mm. They did not, you know, make a book out of it that became a movie. They were just doing their duty for their community. Mm-hmm. I guess I can only follow that up with Annabelle, the classic very baddest doll case, which I covered way back in episode 9, B.E.K. Mm. 2, The Children in the... <laughs> As the Warrens, the sole main titles for the show, <laughs> stupid good titles. <laughs> As the Warrens, the sole maintainers of the doll's story, told it, a nursing student received a Raggedy Ann doll from her mother in 1970. When the doll exhibited strange behavior, a medium revealed that the doll was possessed by a dead woman named Annabelle Higgins. The student and her roommate took compassion for the spirit and granted Annabelle permission to reside in the doll. However. Frightening incidents began to occur and became worse and worse. And they made the right move in contacting the Warrens, who realized immediately that Annabelle Higgins was actually a demon. Oh, no. As listeners may recall, the Warrens' demonological knowledge kept them from the obvious choice of burning that doll and burying the ashes. <laughs> they knew, I'd say masterfully, yes. that object-possessing demons hate nothing more than to be put on display in a garage museum for money. <laughs> this was all the more a prudent move because left unaddressed these things can end badly as was seen in the 1963 episode of the twilight zone and this is true a woman named annabelle gives her daughter a doll that comes to life and terrorizes the family Uh oh well they definitely made the right move there 
in the 1980s, the Smurl family was plagued by a demon in their house that made loud noises and bad, uh, bad odors and pig grunts. Bad odors? Bad odors. Uh-oh. And pig grunts. Uh, threw their dog into a pig, wall. Pig runts? <laughs> yes. Threw their dog into a wall, mm-hmm. uh, shook their mattresses, pushed one of their daughters down a flight of stairs, and physically and sexually assaulted Jack on several occasions. Yikes. Uh, Ed and Lorraine always were very particular experts on cases where people were aimly violated by ghosts. Why else would it come up so much in their books? They, that was their specific expertise. There are many, many books. Yes. Uh, Ed even claimed that when visiting the house in 1986, he saw a dripping message on a mirror that told him to get out. Uh, even though no one, including and members, publish. Of, <laughs> even though no one, including members of the clergy, brought in for the usual blessings and exorcisms, reported anything out of the ordinary in the house, the Warrens heroically made a spooky book about it that was later made into a TV movie. Damn, the Perron family. Another case I covered back in episode 15, Jost Stories. The Perrons moved into a house in Rhode Island and are subsequently haunted like crazy. Furniture moving, orange ooze, walls dissolving into nothing, and a whole cast of spooky spirits ranging in temperament from friendly to freaky. Their torment reaches a crescendo when the evil spirit of Bathsheba Thayer, a certifiable baby-eating witch, possessed wife and mother Carolyn. It is at this point that the parents called in the Warrens, the story became the basis for the 2013 film The Conjuring, which is just because mm-hmm. of facts. Yes. While some say certain events were exaggerated for the purposes of spectacle, Lorraine Warren insisted the film was mostly accurate to what really ha- actually happened for realsies. <laughs> I, for one, would trust the woman who developed the now widely employed psychic sleepover methodology over the current owner of the former parent house, Norma Sutcliffe, who, upon researching the history of her home, discovered many factual errors that have been presented as truth. I think Lorraine, R.I.P., would agree that this is also just unfortunate circumstance that journalists Kent Spotswood, Andy Smith, and James Rubio all exerted their time and energy to further detail how and why the tale of the parent home is just that. Makes sense to me. The Snedeker family purchased a house for a knockout price and at a location convenient to the hospital where their son was receiving treatment for cancer. Uh, The home's perfection was too good to be true. It was formerly a funeral home where the morticians were rumored to have been caught in acts of necrophilia. Uh, This naturally meant the house was haunted and the family began experiencing strange sounds, demonic entities, possessions, the usual. This, you may notice, has the same narrative as the Amityville Horror and The Conjuring. Totally by coincidence, of course. It wasn't just that they had one specific plot they would put (laughs) in all their books. It was just the kind of hauntings that they were drawn to. Mm. Uh, Professionals. In a Dark Place, the story of a true haunting Written by Ed and Lorraine Warren. You know it's true Carmen because Reed. it's called true. Exactly. Uh, Al Snedeker and Ray Garten. It's the book that came out of this. Garten was a horror novelist hired by the Warrens to write the book for them. They figured it would be helpful to have someone who kind of got them, I guess. Who mm-hmm. understood what they did. Some of their dark craft. Yes. Garten said, I found that the accounts of the individual Snedekers didn't quite mesh. They couldn't keep their stories straight. I went to Ed with this problem. Oh, they're crazy, he said. You've got some of the story. Just use what works and make the rest up. Just make it up and make it scary. Neighbors of the Snedeker family, as well as Garten again, attributed most of the paranormal happenings to the family's serious drug and alcohol abuse. And also, um, the former funeral home was owned by a family company that people really respected in the neighborhood and stuff. And so when the Warrens said that they had been practicing necrophilia, it was very upsetting to the whole family who had owned it. And uh, they didn't make that up just for the hell of it. 
or fail to consider how that might affect a family business, they uh, uh, they knew it was all absolutely true based on their expertise as a medium and a ghost hunter. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me, I'm going to save the best for last year. Mm-hmm. The Enfield Poltergeist. These events, beginning in August of 1977 in Enfield, a suburb of London, and later petering out sometime in 1979, are the basis for the 2016 film The Conjuring 2, which depicts the further adventures of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Mm-hmm. Much of their work investigating the Hodgson home appeared in the widely respected tome The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren, written by Gerald Brittle, the same man who wrote the Devil in Connecticut for the Warrens a few years later. Mm. Both of which are books that I keep on my top shelf where I read. Or you can't reach them. <laughs> I have to get up a special I love these books ladder yes. that I have. This case centered mostly around Janet Hodgson, at the time 11 years old, who was alternately tormented and even possessed by a very shy poltergeist. Oh. The spirit was responsible for all manner of evil throwing random items across the room, knocking sounds, strange voices, and growling noises, <laughs> and even causing young Janet to levitate in <sighs> midair. Oh, boy. The story became a media sensation and led to numerous investigations of Janet, her 13-year-old sister Peggy, who also seemed to be affected by the poltergeist's presence, and the entire house. These independent investigators were unable to employ the proper methods established by Ed and Lorraine Warren, and concluded that the girls were playing pranks. Mm. What they did not have the skills to realize was the fact that because most paranormal happenings in the Hodgson house occurred when no one was actually looking at either Janet or Peggy, <laughs> theirs was a very shy poltergeist. Makes sense. There's no, literally no other explanation. Yes, an audio recording of a dresser falling to the floor seemingly of its own accord reveals what very much sound like footsteps creeping up to the dresser just prior to its collapse, but this just goes to show how tangible and private this poltergeist was. Yeah, exactly. Also validating of the ghost's shyness were the instances in which the poltergeist would converse with Janet, almost exclusively when Janet and or Peggy were behind a closed door. <laughs> and when manifesting in the presence of others, the poltergeist hid itself by making it seem as though Janet were making a painfully obvious effort to throw her voice ventriloquism style. <laughs> To add to these audible phenomena are a series of photographs that show Janet levitating and not just jumping out of her bed while screaming. <laughs> In 2011, at the age of 45, Janet even went so far as to try to cover for the poltergeist, stating explicitly that she and her sister faked some of the phenomena. It's a carefully crafted statement phrased in a way that suggests a half-hearted confession, one that, were it not for Ed and Lorraine Warren's professional efforts, would reveal a mind wanting to delicately exercise some modicum of guilt for a childhood spent gaslighting grown-ups for attention. <laughs> yeah. Do you have another one? Or I, have one yeah, I have one more. I'll also saving the best for last. This was turned into a book called Werewolf, A True Story of Demonic Possession. Uh, Ed and Lorraine, <laughs> alongside Catholic bishops and retired police officers, exercised the angry spirit of a werewolf from a man's body. No, makes perfect sense. Yeah. And as observed on Unexplained Mysteries, quote, The Warrens haven't been able to produce any photos or material evidence, but the very presence of the famous demonologist couple, paranormal collector John Zavis, and famous exorcist bishop Robert McKenna greatly increases the credibility. So true. They were oh, there. Yes. So it happened. Forget claims that the story is simply of a man getting violent with some cops, blaming supernatural forces, having exorcism, then acting fine afterward. Nope. Werewolf demon. 
and Ed and Lorraine stopped it. Also, no one in any way should think about how Ed was allegedly physically abusive with Lorraine throughout their marriage, and indeed violent toward anyone who questioned the validity of the couple's claims. No. And you really shouldn't think about Judith Penny's allegations that Ed initiated a decades-long sexual relationship with her, with Lorraine's knowledge, when Judith was 15, going so far as to give her a bedroom in their house where she was to live with them and be there for him whenever he wanted her. And it makes no sense to bear that allegation in mind while also considering that Lorraine's deal with New Line Cinemas included very specific restrictions that The Conjuring films couldn't depict either Lorraine or Ed engaging in crimes, including sex with minors, child pornography, prostitution, or sexual assault, and that neither Ed nor Lorraine could be depicted as participating in an extramarital sexual relationship. And town attorney Jill Smith's assertion that she had never seen such specific language restricting such specific depictions in anyone's agreement to having their likeness used in a movie, that should also have no bearing on our remembrances of the Warrens. May they rest in peace. Mm -hmm. As we know from multiple instances in the past on this show, the official stance of Super Duper Sitches is, we love the Warrens. They're good, they're smart, and they will always be remembered. And uh, with that, I think we can... Move on to your segment, Wyatt. Now, to my knowledge, no official announcement has been made about the cause of Lorraine Warren's death, but I'm optimistic my segment will offer some clues. Excellent. The last time 67-year-old widow Mrs. Mary Reeser was seen alive was on July 1st, 1951. Her son, Dr. Richard Reeser, or Dick Reeser... (laughs) And her landlady, Mrs. Pansy M. Carpenter, these sound like fake fucking names, <laughs> sure do. both said goodnight around 9 p.m. At and the same time. <laughs> made eye contact and went, one, two, three, goodnight. Good and left Mrs. Reeser sitting in her easy chair in her apartment in St. Petersburg, Florida. The first sign of trouble was living in St. Petersburg, Florida, am I right? Was at 5 a.m., Mrs. Carpenter was awakened by the smell of smoke and, assuming it was a water pump in the garage that had been overheating because, you know, 1951, Mm -hmm. she turned the pump off and went back to sleep. Hours later, at 8 a.m., Mrs. Carpenter was awakened by a telegraph boy at her door with a message for Mrs. Reeser. The message said she were on fire. (laughs) Carpenter's, I'm spoiling it, but there you go. Uh, Mrs. Carpenter signed for the note and walked to Mrs. Reeser's room, but there was no answer to her knock. Carpenter went to enter the room, but the doorknob was scalding hot. Oh, goddamn. That joke was not written and just came out of the ether and took me by surprise. I like you, though. All right. Carpenter signed for the note and walked to Mrs. Reeser's room, but there was no answer to her knock. Carpenter went to enter the room, but the doorknob was scalding hot. Alarmed, Carpenter ran outside to find help. A pair of house painters working nearby rushed over, and together they managed to force the door open to Mrs. Reeser's apartment. They were met by a terrible blast of heat, evidence of a fire within, Mm. but what they discovered inside defied belief. Only a small portion of the apartment had burned, a corner in which sat the remains of Mary Reeser's easy chair, and of Mary Reeser herself. Oh, dear. Of the chair, only charred coil springs remained. And of Mrs. Reeser, little more. Little more than her charred coil springs. <laughs> exactly. She was a robot. <laughs> Mrs. Reeser's 170 pounds had been reduced to less than 10 pounds of charred material. Only her left foot remained intact, still wearing a slipper, burnt off at the ankle but otherwise undamaged. Oh. Also found were her liver, now fused to a lump of vertebrae, 
and still stranger still oh my god it's horrifying and huh? stranger still her skull mm. strangely shrunk to the size of a teacup what yeah graphic descriptions alert everybody there's a few more coming <laughs> after the fact yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> just in case why the reason you're feeling <laughs> grossed out right now is because of graphic descriptions happened <laughs> the remainder of the apartment showed all the signs of heat damage from about the four foot level up the walls were covered with a greasy soot a mirror had cracked plastic switches and a plastic tumbler in the bathroom had melted as had two candles on a dresser which left behind their unburned wicks and a pink pool of wax hmm. below the four foot level the only damage was the small circular burn area encompassing the remains of mrs reeser and her chair during the investigation, detectives found that Reeser's temperature had reached 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit, wow. equivalent to 1,900 degrees Celsius or 2,200 Kelvin if you're some kind of weird science freak out there. <laughs> A puzzling find, as almost everything else in the room in which Reeser was found remained intact. The electrical outlet had melted only after the fire had begun. The carpet tested negative for gasoline and other accelerants. Even lightning had been considered, but there had been none in St. Petersburg that night. Spontaneous human combustion mm-hmm. is my topic today, also known as ash madness, <laughs> coal bone fever, and the hot death. <laughs> We've heard these terms every day of our lives. Every single day. <laughs> A strange and frightening phenomenon that could seemingly happen to anyone at any time. <laughs> There are many historical cases of spontaneous human combustion, but most, if not all, can be chalked up to standard scary story time fare, mm-hmm. reported as factual tragedy only after sort of losses in translation or enough playing of the game of Telegram. Telephone? Well, oh, sorry, I they're very old. Yeah, see. <laughs> but incredible, fanciful, spontaneous combustion stories do still emerge even to this day. Oh, Some listeners may recall that in 2012, there was a widely covered story of a California mother who suffered second and third degree burns when her cargo shorts suddenly caught fire after a day at the beach with her family. Oh. Quote, we were talking about who was going to pick up the babysitter, Lynn Heiner said on Good Morning America. And all of a sudden, something hot on my leg just sort of started to bother me. So I started thinking it was a bug bite. So I started slapping it, and the next thing I know, my pants were on fire. She must have been lying to somebody. Precisely. She had collected some harmless-looking green and orange-colored rocks with her daughters on San Onofre Beach. San San Onofre? I don't know what the fuck. I'm not sure. State Beach in Southern California. Heiner had put the rocks in her pocket after they left the beach. When furious padding and rolling failed to put out the fire, family members managed to help Lynn rip the shorts off before things got too much worse. Fire authorities responded to smoke alarms in the couple's home that were set off because the flames in Lynn Heiner's pockets were so intense. Wow. Quote, there were actual flames coming up off her cargo shorts, uh, Orange County Fire Authority Captain Mark Stone told ABC News. The husband was outside with a garden hose actually trying to cool her leg down. This certainly seems like a spontaneous fire involving a human. But on further investigation, scientists found that among the seven rocks gathered from the beach, there were traces of phosphorus. Whoa. Phosphorus is naturally occurring, but highly reactive and thus rarely found as a free element. Raw phosphorus is pyrophoric, meaning it can self-ignite upon contact with air. The working hypothesis in this case was that the phosphorus-coated stones were still wet on the beach when they collected, but dried out in Lynn's shorts. Lynn's story is pretty atypical of the vast majority of confirmed reports of SHC, however. Most victims are much older, immobile, (laughs) 
um, and or had seemingly been in a state of unconsciousness leading up to their demise. For instance, having fallen asleep or passed out before things went crazy. Yeah. Often as well, there is a source of the fire, such as a cigarette that may have fallen to the lap. So this is like the case that I read with the cold open. Mm-hmm. In all likelihood, she was smoking. Was it that cold though? What? <laughs> Hot open. Yes. Um, often as well, there is a source for the fire, such as a cigarette that may have fallen to the lap after someone like passes out in their chair. Gotcha. And this is what we think happened with uh, Mrs. Reeser. She would smoke on occasion. Gotcha. And the operating theory is that she just passed out with a cigarette in her hand and unfortunately went up and smoked. Mm. Still, there are rich pseudoscientific theories for why spontaneous human combustion occurs that we can't afford to not discuss. <laughs> Pyrotrons. Oh, God. Proposed by Larry E. Arnold in his 1995 book. Proposed by Larry. Good year. Yeah. Proposed by Larry E. Arnold in his 1995 book, Ablaze. Oh. Pyrotrons are proposed as a new subatomic uh, particle contributing to the immolation of the body, typically under great stress or following increased alcohol con- consumption. Jesus Christ. So, obviously, this is what is happening, and this is what we can now accept, and pyrotrons are real now. It makes sense that if something weird happened, you would not just look at things you already know and figure out how they might factor into well, an opportunity situation. for creation. You, yeah, instead, then come up with some kind of complex quantum theory for why that might happen. You have, yes. you know, leptons, you have quarks you have um gravitons i think you're trying to try and find Lu- yeah and uh why not uh pyrotrons pyrotrons <laughs> much like uh sasquatch was brought to earth by ufos <laughs> exactly poltergeists oh no doy right mm-hmm. in his 1976 book you were gonna say something no i was gonna say i almost did poltergeists for my thing it's like what's well, kind of like vaguely related to like, oh, nah, health yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in his 1976 book, Fire from Heaven, UK writer Michael Harrison suggests that spontaneous human combustion is connected to poltergeist activity because, he argues, the force which activates the poltergeist originates in and is supplied by a human being. Within the concluding summary, he writes, spontaneous human combustion, fatal or non-fatal, belongs to the extensive range of poltergeist phenomena. We're on the same page, it sounds like. And finally, ball lightning. Ball lightning? Suggested by some to be the cause of spontaneous human combustion, ball lightning remains effectively unexplained by the scientific community. I think we talked about this before, but I forget what episode. I have no idea. We did, but I have no idea when. Um, but occurs as a spherical object anywhere between the size of a pea and the size of a ball. Just kidding. <laughs> but the thought is basically, surprise lightning will pull off a B and E if it can punch a person in the arm to set them on fire until dead. <laughs> Those are fun, but how about some real science? I don't know about that, Wyatt. First off, when you look at most any case of spontaneous human combustion, they really aren't that spontaneous. A better term would and likely... barely human. <laughs> you call that a fire? <laughs> a better term would be incidental human combustion, followed by the wick effect. Mm. And no, I'm not talking about the John Wick effect, <laughs> which is the tendency for a person to go on an action-packed killing spree of violent retribution after a beloved pet is murdered. <laughs> You're probably familiar. <laughs> No, the wick effect I'm describing is somehow more gruesome and describes the tendency of human fat to be soaked up by clothing in a fire, sustaining the flame Mm. to create a kind of giant ghoulish candle. Oh, God. 
So long as there is fat to burn, the fire will continue to rage, and as fat contains a ton of energy, the fire tends to burn with great intensity over an extended period. I think I saw, maybe you'll cover this, but I remember seeing an experiment. For whatever reason, there were a lot of phenomena back in the 90s that were super popular. I'll talk about this. This, Go on. Oh, just wrapping up like a chunk of lard. Yeah. Or, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I could do you one better. <laughs> right? <laughs> wrapped up an entire whale oh god what i was kidding oh, i believed you because people get really into this stuff we need more area rugs <laughs> or they're just trying to dispose of a whale body and wrapping it in a rug it's been burning for 17 years <laughs> Um, in 1998, this is my very next sentence, uh, oh. the BBC television program QED tested the applicability of the Wick effect in explaining the results of apparent spontaneous human combustion cases. Hmm. A dead pig's body was wrapped in a blanket to simulate clothes and placed in a furnished room of an occupied home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Without the owner's knowledge. Yeah. The blanket was lit and with the aid of a small amount of petrol... What the fuck? Well, that kind of spoils it. The blanket was lit with the aid of a small amount of petrol. Okay. Um, so you can imagine the, the pig was hanging out in the living room and accidentally dropped some lit gasoline on itself. They had to do something. Yeah. <laughs> the body took some time to ignite, but burned at a very high temperature with low flames once it did go up. Hmm. Uh, the heat collected at the top of the room and melted a television. But the flames caused very little damage to the surroundings themselves. Okay. The body burned for a number of hours before it was extinguished and examined, revealing that the flesh and bones in the burnt portion had been entirely destroyed. Hmm. So this is a very promising candidate for the results of what appeared to be... Spontaneous, oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Perhaps most upsetting, though... Uh-oh. And this is apparently true... Lawrence Afrin, MD, posits that a rare condition called mast cell activation syndrome, or MCAS, may be the cause of less explainable cases of spontaneous human combustion. In MCAS, mast cells, which reside in connective tissue throughout the body and contribute to immune function, spontaneously release over 200 inflammatory molecules known as mediators, including the substance norepinephrine. Hmm. Afrin describes a case report of a man with MCAS who grew ill and appeared to, quote, smoke in the presence of several witnesses. Afrin writes that the release of large amounts of norepinephrine, or perhaps another mast cell-derived substance, could turn on a regulatory protein called UCP1 in greater than normal amounts. UCP1 causes adipose, or fat tissues, to oxidize and be released as heat. Wow. Adipose tissue is a known repository of mast cells. Under the right circumstances, a sudden flood of norepinephrine released from adipose mast cells could activate the UCP1 so-called switch and cause heat generation in excess of 90 degrees Celsius, the ignition point of fat. Jesus. Once the adipose tissue was ignited, it would, in theory, burn itself out, inclusive of bone marrow and all surrounding tissue. Jesus. Spontaneous human combustion. Did the guy live when that happened? Oh, uh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Could not care less. He blew away in a breeze. <laughs> yeah. uh, norepinephrine, by the way, is adrenaline. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, well, that is very interesting. I did not know that there was actually a possible way that that could happen. Had never heard of real. that before. Yeah, well. And now we know. And uh, we can only guess, perhaps hope, this is how, how our dear, dear friend Lorraine Warren met her own end. Because 
Fuck the Warrens. She's burning hell. She and, probably uh, saw the ghouls and the imps or whatever when she was yep. cashing out her checks. I think actually, I, as of today, I think it said that she uh, died of like heart failure in her sleep. So, whatever. Whatever. Probably got ghosted. Yeah. Burp. Burp. And that concludes our episode this week. More energy. <laughs> and that concludes our episode this week. And uh, thank you guys very much for tuning in. And we will be back again next similar week. Similar time. Different place. <laughs> yep. Not uh, for you necessarily, but no. <laughs> just listen to the show. Thanks. Bye. Bye. I say, don't put gas on skin. What if it catches? That's the lock of leather jackets. He said, here's when you lose your innocence. He said, Lord, I'll stop pretending with the matches. And I'm afraid I've never seen a flame as